this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Anna Rush, Chris Rush, and Peter Franz, translators of Yuri Tinyanov's novel Kuchlia, Decemberist poet published by Academic Studies Press in 2021. Peter Franz studied French and Russian at Modlin College and in France and taught at the University of Sussex before becoming professor of French at Edinburgh University. He's the author and editor of many books on Russian, French, and comparative literature, including Poets of Modern Russia and the Oxford Guide to Literature in English Translation. Having studied Russian during national service, he has translated a wide range of Russian poets, including Bachkov, Baratinsky, Lermontov, Aninsky, Blok, Pasternak, Mayakovsky, Mandeshtam, and in particular, Gennady Aigi. He is emeritus professor of French at the Edinburgh University and a fellow of the British Academy. Anna Kurkina Rush, a Russian-born translator and scholar, taught English at the University of Vladimir in Russia and Russian at George Watson's College and the University of St. Andrews, of which she holds a doctorate. She lives in Scotland with her husband and co-translator Chris and their two children and translates from and into Russian. Among her published works into Russian is the novel Will, Zrishania Shakespeare, published in 2018 by St. Petersburg's Palmyra Press. She has translated three of uh, Tinyanov's novels into English together with uh, Chris Rush, who is the author of 25 critically acclaimed books in various genres, poetry, prose fiction, biography, besides his work as editor, memoirist, screenplay writer, and writer of academic and literary essays. Uh, Hello, uh, Anna, Chris, Peter, and of course, congratulations on this translation. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you. 
So, of course, I would like to start with my question about what drew you to, as translators to Tinyanov's novel Kuchle. Well, I assume that this novel is not very well known to Anglophone uh, audiences, but I would also say that this novel is not very well known to uh, Russian um, or, or Russophone uh, um, uh, audiences as well, but I can be wrong in this. So, uh, and Tinyanov is known as a, a theorist or formalist uh, in the West, and what kind of intervention did you mean by drawing attention to his fiction writing? Shall I start? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm, I would be one of those who didn't know this novel at all until, well, not very long ago, I'd come across Tignanov through literary theory, and he was a formalist, a very important formalist, and I'd read his work and admired it, but didn't realize that he was also, and somewhat sort of paradoxically, a creative writer, because, uh, and particularly a biographical creative writer, since the formalists, is, uh, you know, were not uh, very keen on biography as an approach to literature, in theory, at least. Anyhow, I read Kuchler, by chance, I think, really, and was bowled over by it. I thought, this is an amazing book, and if I wanted to, I, I would have liked to translated it, but luckily, uh, Anna and Chris had begun already, so I was able to join in with what was going on. And I suppose what I really wanted to do was to convey something of the quality, which is in a way a formalist quality of the uh, text, the Russian, uh, the making strange, as formalists call it, which is so much a feature of the prose of Tignana to this novel. But also, of course, the story is tremendously appealing and um, touching, and I wanted to to be part of this and to convey this. Yeah. Um, shall I say something? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, I, I, I must say that I, Tanyanov came to me like a tabula rasa, <laughs> as a complete ignoramus, a Western ignoramus. But I've always been uh, fascinated in, in my own writing by, by the, in, in the, the idea of the growth of the child. And the fascinating, for, fascinating thing for me in, in Kukla is uh, how the, the child remains a child, uh, in a sense, even into adulthood. Now, most of us let the child in us die. We say goodbye. And, and Kukla never does. And, and for me, that's uh, very compelling and very touching and very real. Um, well, we have previously translated Tinyanov's other two novels, uh, Young Pushkin and The Death of Vazir Mukhtar. So it made perfect sense to complete the so-called trilogy of Tinyanov's novels on the literary figures uh, of the Pushkin's time. So we went backwards. So we started with his third novel, Pushkin, then we translated the second one, Vazir Mukhtar. So this is his debut novel, which he published in 1925 when he was only 31. So, back to the beginnings, in other words. Mm -hmm. But the revelation for us as translators was how um, quite complex this novel was. You know, for a debut novel, it had all the hallmarks of the mature master, mm -hmm. which you can find in his more complex and uh, lengthy novels. Mm -hmm. And how would, you, how would you describe the genre of the novel? Is it a historical novel? Is it an um, epic piece of writing? Is it a bildungsroman? Uh, what did the genre mean to Tinyanov, who contributed to the development of Russian formalism? 
when it published the historical novel in it, it, there's a great deal of history in it, a great deal of the history of Russia of the period. What's different about it, I suppose, and what's more modern about it, mm-hmm. is that the traditional historical novel takes a fictional character and uh, puts his fictional character into a more or less real past. Uh, Walter Scott is the great example of this, of course, and King Anna, if he'd thought about historical novels, something he did, uh, Walter Scott would have been a, a, the central figure. But of course, King Anna doesn't do that. He, he doesn't invent people at all. The people are all real people. He may invent things about them, but uh, it is, it, it's, it's more like an imaginative biography than like a traditional historical novel. But I suppose in a way that's what we expect now if you think of Hilary Mantel's uh, novels about Thomas Cromwell or um, a, a great novel, I think, which is rather like Cuclia, which is Penelope Fitzgerald's The Blue Flower about the poet Novalis. These are these proceeding very much the same way that Tiniana does. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna, Chris, would you like to add something to I, this genre question? I mean, I, yes, I, it, it does have this astonishing historical sweep um, and, 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 and an epic reach. Um, but for, for me, first and foremost, it still remains a, a coming-of-age novel, except, paradoxically, that that formulation, coming-of-age, is never fully achieved in Kukle, who, re, who refuses to grow up. I, I wonder, in a sense, if he represents a Russia that is still waiting to grow up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> it's a good patronizing. <laughs> well, it's, a long, it's been a long wait. You, 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 um, I mean, She's still in Korean. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, William, William Wordsworth once, once famously put it, uh, he said, the child is father of the man. And in that sense, the, the child is the teacher. Of the adult, and, and and there's something in Kukla, isn't there, Anna, that um, yes, the child yeah. still, still teaches the adult. Um, so for me, it's and that's what I think what governs Kukla is this is this struggle between childhood and adulthood. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yes, yeah, and it's um, well, you know, historical novel is has rigid um, rules, you know, but. The- he kind of bends the rules mm-hmm. and creates a kind of uh, an interesting hybrid. There is scholarship there, and he knew the era very well. He started studying Gribayedov and Kifilbeka in particular during his uh, student years as an undergraduate at St. Petersburg University in Professor Simon Bengerov's uh, Pushkin seminar. So, and the, the method that they practiced was complete immersion. You know, you were supposed to know everything, every detail, every text from that uh, epoch, which he did, clearly. So it is literary scholarship, which he uses as a materi- material, and he fictionalizes it by providing, well, sometimes he bends the facts slightly, mm-hmm. he compresses two events that took place three years apart, for example, they merge into one scene. So he takes liberties in a way, but he remains true to the artistic uh, essence of the uh, era as he sees it. And he has a clear concept uh, of the protagonist. You know, it's not just compilation of materials, you know, throwing throwing facts, as many facts as possible. It's all... um, thought through very carefully and molded. So it's an epic 
as uh, Chris said, it's a coming-of-age novel, except uh, the first time we see Kuchelbeke, he's 11 years old. So, Tinyanov uh, does not start with the birth of the protagonist. Mm -hmm. And uh, then um, some of the chapters uh, read as a fast-paced adventure novel. Some sub-chapters are, uh, are written as an epistolary novel or a diary, a travelogue. Um, so it's a whole... He plays with the genres uh, with such flair and ease. It's extraordinary, you know, for a young uh, writer who who writes his first novel. It's breathtaking. Yeah, and what's what's the goal of this play with the genres? As you pointed out, he plays with the genres. So, what did he want to uh, accomplish by bending these rules for historical novel, let's say, or by combining or creating this hybrids genre hybrids uh, with this with this kind of piece? And yeah, well, yeah, I I, I I completely agree with this statement. It's quite uh, bold, right, for a for a young writer to to do something like this with. Well, I suppose I suppose to rejuvenate the genre, mm -hmm. to jolt it, to jolt a tired uh, old genre into making it exciting, making it um, tangible again, which was the uh, the, the main ethos of uh, formal school. Mm -hmm. There's the other thing, uh, Anna knows more about this than I do, but it was originally meant for young people. This, uh, it was, it was a, not exactly a children's book, but a book meant to um, celebrate the Decembrist rising mm -hmm. for young people. So it was meant to be an improving biography, if you like. He doesn't do that in the end, far from it. <laughs> it I don't know if it's improving or not, but um, it certainly doesn't finish up being a young people's book. It's a book for everybody, really. And I, I, I would imagine it's probably really much more going to be read much more by mature people than by young people. Mm -hmm. But that's our yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, he was writing this novel with his young audience in mind, right? Is, uh, did you, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, for him as an artist, you know, it's the thrill of creative writing, the freedom, the abandon. Mm -hmm. he, he does it with such ease, seemingly, of course. Uh, I imagine there was quite a lot of <laughs> uh, knowledge and effort that went into it, although he wrote it within, uh, some people say he wrote it within six weeks or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the thrill of uh, uh, the, the freedom that creative writing afforded him because as as a as a scholar, you're always constricted. Like if you quote something, you need to to provide a reference. It, it, you you're responsible for every word that you put on paper, and here you can give free rein to your imagination. Well, Chris knows <laughs> as a creative writer, you knows better what the process is. So, in this case, writing was some sort of uh, liberating tool for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one thing is that um, the formalist scholars were, were very close, of course, to the creative writers, their contemporaries, to Mayakovsky, for instance. There was this famous story about, I, I, if I can get this right, 
that Mayakovsky said when Kenyanov had written his novel and published his novel, we can speak to one another as one great power to another. So, you know, he's made, he's made it into the world of the, 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 in the end, more prestigious world of creative writing. And I think, however committed the formalists were to put to, to their theory, uh, it's still, there's more prestige to being a novelist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to follow and up. To prove, yeah, and to prove that yeah. there, <laughs> yeah, and it was also their means of proving that their theoretical um, methods could be put into use, you know, and they showed how to do it. Yeah, like Skrovsky would be the other main example of this. Victor Skrovsky, and uh, you know, he was all the time juggling between theory and film and and writing uh, mm-hmm. and creative writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's that sort of feeling that you know, the two go together. Exactly. Yes. I'm just uh, just thinking as you, as you were speaking about. Um, that famous novel, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Atticus Finch, the lawyer, and it says something like, you have to think yourself into another person's skin. You have to you have to get under the skin of that person and be that person. When I was writing a, a novel called Will about William Shakespeare, uh, that's what I thought, tried to do, to, to get into the skin of the... Of, of, and, and this is what um, Tinyanov does. He gets underneath the skin of the, exactly. of the real person and... Uh, and, and of course, that means Im- imagining you're that person and taking liberties, but it, it works. My God, it works. <laughs> yeah, I think theoretically it is called, uh, I'm feeling the, the method of feeling into the character, you know. And he's very good. He was famous um, for his impersonations, you know. He mm. could present any any of his acquaintances, uh, the way they walked, the way they talked, their mannerisms. He was very good at that. He was very good at uh, satirical impromptus, for example, um, a very witty conversationalist. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a literary, and a chameleon. Uh, if you look how he writes, one chapter can be written as a traditional 19th century novel of the golden age. Next one, uh, he switches, uh, he, he has this freedom of writing uh, in any mood or style he chooses, you know, whatever is appropriate, how he feels what is appropriate at this particular uh, point in the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a few follow-up questions, and I think we already touched a little bit on uh, the main character, on uh, Kuchle, uh, but uh, my questions will be um, connected with um, with this character as well. And another one um, as well, uh, you already made some comments about um, uh, Tinyanov's Russia. Uh, what kind of Russia he creates in this novel, or he responds to, or he reacts to? Uh, this will be my first question in another one will be about Kuchle himself. Uh, he travels a lot in this novel. He leaves Russia and then he goes to Europe, then he goes to Caucasus, then he comes back to Russia. And there is some sense of nostalgia uh, in this uh, novel. What does this traveling back and forth signal in your opinion? And is it some sort of anxiety or restlessness? Is it some sort of sense of 
purposelessness or maybe it's a quest and maybe uh, somehow this sense of restlessness or purposeful, uh, uh, purposelessness in some way connected with that image of Russia that um, Tinyanov uh, responds to or maybe he reconstructs or constructs. Uh, I mean, I, I immediately, uh, sorry for my Western, uh, um, but I immediately think of Robert Louis Stevenson, who, who famously said, to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. Um, <laughs> and and in that respect, you could say that Kuchler's travels are infinite and endless and represent the quest of life, hence the Don Quixote yeah. um, motive that, that comes in. Uh, not just what Kuchler is seeking, but which all of us are all human beings are seeking, especially if they are thinking human beings, and especially I think if they never grew up, and there's always that idealistic child. But it's a romantic concept, of course, and but, but Kuchler's travels are, are Byronic in a sense. He, he's a pale shadow of Child Harold, but nevertheless he follows in those famous footsteps, uh, traveling endlessly, representing what we're we're always we're all all of us traveling from. But I better shut up and let it someone else. Say something more specific. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Peter, would you like to comment on uh, well, this sort I, of trap? I was going to come in then. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've got much really to, to add to that. I mean, it, um, he's, he's obviously a, a strange, incomplete hero. He, he sort of lacks, lacks the sort of central body, a central core. And therefore, he's always casting around, going off to all over the place. Um, the one thing that's a rather different sort of approach I, I, occurred to me, maybe Anna will tell me I'm quite wrong about this, because she knows much more about Tignanov than I do, but um, uh, I'm wondering to what extent Tignanov is enjoying the chance to write about all these foreign places. Mm -hmm. um, it is in 1925. Travel was not terribly easy if you are a Soviet citizen at that time. Some people managed to, but um, uh, and he's, he's therefore able to sort of explore around uh, Europe. Um, I mean, he doesn't go very far, but, but going off to or the fun of going to um, the Mediterranean and being nearly drowned and uh, mm -hmm. then thinking about Greek independence. All of this European uh, sort of vision must have been quite liberating, I think, for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Right. So um, uh, in this case, again, I, I feel like we go back to this idea about freedom and liberation in terms of writing. And in this, with this novel, in this novel, it looks like Tinyanov creates this third place for himself where he can probably perform as an individual who is not restricted by uh, all those um, rules imposed by the Soviet regime, or he can let himself explore uh, those um, spaces and places that uh, seem not to be available uh, to him uh, in his real life, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, he, he did. He did travel because of his multiple sclerosis. He had to travel to consult doctors in in Germany. Uh -huh. He he was allowed to travel to uh, France to Paris. Um, so I mean, it's not like he was um, uh, he was dreaming of something impossible mm -hmm. and forbidden. Mm -hmm. Although, uh, like any other Soviet citizen, he must have felt the constrictions. Mm -hmm. 
of Soviet life, but um, I think it's about uh, reimagining things, mm -hmm. like um, that uh, uh, fast-paced uh, adventure scene um, in Italy with the boatman who attacks him and tries to rob him. I think it's a rewriting of uh, Lermontov, uh, you know, that scene from Tamayn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, again, I think he imagines himself to be the character. Uh, yeah, probably it's... Um... Yeah, Lermontov, Lermontov comes in again, doesn't he, in the Caucasus episode? So another question on uh, about Kuchelbecker. Uh, uh, is he an idealist in your opinion? He often acts as a knight. He doesn't want to accept the money, for example, that comes from a mysterious gentleman uh, set up by Adayevsky. He stands up for the serfs who are physically punished. Uh, he defies his rich tyrant acquaintances who believe in their right to physically abuse others. At the same time, uh, Kuchle is a duelist and he is known for his unreliable reputation. This is the quote from the translation, and is not considered a good young man for young women uh, who are looking for a fiancé. Well, I mean, if <laughs> he's only regarded as unreliable by the people who are the people he's rebelling against. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's absolutely an idealist. No two ways about it. He, he, his, his eyes are all on some distant, wonderful thing that is possible. We might be able to create it and maybe in politics, it may be in literature, it may be in love, whatever it is, he's always looking for this, and uh, he has fairly little solid grasp of the real world. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think uh, one of Tinyanov's innovations is his choice of character, because normally it's somebody, you know, a, a famous, uh, a great person, it's a, a general or... Um, you know, military leader, uh, a politician. And here he chooses somebody who looks to be a failure, you know, whatever his thoughts. Um, sometimes he doesn't finish or he fails to do it. Lots of his travels are aborted, you know. Um, so it's, um, it's a strange and very deliberate choice of a character. Um, and Tignanov was interested in the phenomenon of failure. You know, mm. yes. Particularly in the context of uh, a culture which is trying to set up uh, models of how how to live. You know, the Samichatini Chiraviet, the person who's going to be a uh, a role model. Chiraviet uh, <laughs> is a very strange as a role model. Yeah, because he doesn't conform and he doesn't want to conform, and then he wonders why his why life sweeps him uh, away. You know, <laughs> why why he fails in what he started doing. Uh, so and. Um... As you pointed out for Tinyanov, it's some sort of uh, exploration, right, of all those possibilities that uh, genres can open up. And the characters themselves in this novel speak a lot about art, literature, and language uh, specifically. What are they trying to complete via art? Um, does, it, um, does it have some sort of revolutionary uh, impetus, or is it an area that helps to escape 
reality for the characters. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, it's, it's a philological novel in a way, because um, it's not so much about, well, it is about history, but it's more about history of literature, Russian literature, and literature is the mainspring of, 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 uh, of this novel. And uh, liter literati, men of letters and um, literary salons, uh, in a way, are more important for Tinyanov than what is happening, you know, politically or historically. But it sort of evolves, the novel sort of changes, doesn't it, this way? At the beginning, he's the idealist, Schiller-type Schiller idealist, with an idea, a high ideal of literature, which is not going to be trivial. It's not going to be um, playing around. It's going to be at the highest level, and that's what differentiates him from most of the other writers in the, in the novel, actually, isn't it? Because he's, he's the one who has, he, he has a certain high ideal which someone like Pushkin um, is going to play with. But Pushkin never plays. There's no, there's no jokes. There's no jokes in, in, in Pushkin. Uh, he, he's a high idealist. And this gradually gets taken over by politics, I mean, you see him becoming more political mm -hmm. uh, in his writing, or having more of a belief in political writing uh, as, as, you, as you get near to the, to the Decembrist rising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, his, yeah, his characters do make a lot of political statements. The characters, oh yeah. But, uh, and future and stuff, yeah. So if uh, we were to somehow um, systematize what real historical figures he mentions in this novel, uh, what would that uh, system look like? And what does that system probably uh, tell us? Is there any system for, for those names which I mentioned, real names which I mentioned in this novel? Well, we can see Decembrists, uh, but we see them at the moment of, um, you know, in the state of disarray and irresolution on the eve of the Decembrist uprising and during the uprising. Um, and they are presented not as heroes, mm. you know, they are presented as, uh, as people, as men who are afraid for their lives, you know, who, who in a way can can see that the things are sort of out of their hands, that um, they are not actors uh, in, in history. History is playing with them. Things are spinning out of control. And I think this is one of innovations, um, you know, in the representation of Decembrists that Tinyanov introduces, because it was supposed to be, he wrote it in 1925, to coincide with the uh, 
centenary of December's uprising. It was supposed to be or expected to be a celebratory piece. And suddenly he comes up with this, you know, a very ineffectual Decembrist that Kichelbecker is, you know, he tries to shoot great, uh, Grand Duke Michael, he fails, you know. Um, so as a Decembrist, he, he doesn't achieve his role, his goal. As against, as against the Decembrist, one of the surprising things from the novel to me is the a lot of the amount of space is devoted to the villains, that is, to the powers that be, to the imperial family, Yamalov. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's a great uh, you get, particularly in the in the bits about the actual December uprising, you get almost as much about the Grand Dukes uh, as you do about the Decemberists, not quite as much. And uh, Tignanov has obviously got. I don't know how interested he is in them. It's a satirical portrait. They're never presented as having anything good to be said about them, but they are presented very interestingly, as a sort of, uh, as if he has tried to get inside what Michael or Constantine or, um, or Nicholas indeed himself were thinking. And that, that's really quite surprising in a way that he should have given so much space to that and not just had them as sort of cardboard figures of evil. Well, exactly, because he, he's interested in, in providing a balanced view, not just one-sided, these are heroes, these are villains. He shows that even villains can have moments of uh, doubt and uh, fear. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something Shakespearean about it. We all know that Shakespeare is the most objective and impersonal <laughs> author in the world, and Tanyana has that. Objectivity and impersonality. In the one moment he's getting underneath somebody's skin, and in another moment he's looking at them from a from a distance through a telescope. Uh, so it, it's astonishing for me who came to it as as an ignoramus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was uh, quite revealing, you know. But I think it's the contrasts, the contrasts that uh, are of particular interest to him. And sometimes I think whether consciously or unconsciously, he was trying to do in literature what Eisenstein did with his Brennenotik Patyonkin. You know, because 1925 was not only centennial of uh, December uprising, it was a 20th anniversary mm -hmm. of, of the 1905 uh, revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what uh, Battleship Patyonkin, mm -hmm. Eisenstein's Patyonkin uh, was about. And he created the whole iconography of, of, <laughs> of the first um, of, um, revolution of 1905. Whether it was true or fictionalized is, is a different matter. But I think this is what Pinyanov is trying to achieve mm -hmm. as well for the Decembrist uh, uprising. Of course, it's extremely visual and cin cinematic in that way. And uh, really rather weirdly so at times. I mean, the bits about uh, how Leningrad or how St. Petersburg is laid out in squares and so, it's quite extraordinary. It's sort of like, a, it's like abstract art he's doing, a whole set of lines, parallel lines and things like that. Um, it's pretty unusual in a novel to have a, a piece like that, that um, description of the picture. Mm -hmm. 
Well, going back to Kuchle, uh, well, I'm wondering if um, you would describe him as a character who undergoes some profound internal, psychological, emotional transformations, because he does go through some uh, drastic um, transformations in terms of history, in terms of some protests, in terms of some political uh, developments. And he also has uh, a couple of events in his life that could uh, potentially influence an individual in a very transformative way. For example, his uh, uh, I, I, I can't even say relationships with women because none of them transpired and developed further. So, but um, I, I'm wondering if if you would describe Kuchle as someone who we can uh, somehow interpret and read in terms of these very nuanced, very subtle, and yet transformative, drastic uh, changes of his psyche or of his nature, his character? Well, he, he undergoes what Dostoevsky underwent, you mm-hmm. know, and we know now when, <laughs> when we're celebrating <laughs> bicentennial of Dostoevsky's birth, um, we, heard, we hear a lot about it, um, how the experience of... Um, you know, the execution, which didn't take place uh, in case of Dostoevsky, uh, affected him. It had a profound effect on him. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. same happened to Kukli because he was originally sentenced uh, to death, mm-hmm. together with the other five ringleaders. But eventually, it was uh, uh, the sentence was changed. It was uh, substituted for 10 years of... Um, imprisonments in fortresses and then uh, uh, penal servitude in, in Siberia. Uh, Anna, but this is this is real Kuchlia, right? It's not Tinyanov's Kuchlia. Is that it's correct? Real. It's, it's real. Right? real. So yes. I, I guess my question was about Tinyanov's Kuchlia, if, if we interpret his Yeah, character. but he describes it in his novel. Mm-hmm. He describes the scene of execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but interestingly, it's all... It's presented uh, in a strangely grotesque form, you know, as if we see this execution or mock execution through the eyes uh, of Kukle, who by then um, is almost, uh, he's almost deranged, you know, Mm -hmm. and he thinks that he's taken to be uh, um, uh, on... um, to be on the swings, you know, like children's swings. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, right. Mm-hmm. And I think it echoes uh, Pushkin's, um, you know, shock and horror when he found out about the details of uh, uh, of uh, the December execution and his famous words that uh, I too could have, you know, hung here like a buffoon. So I think it's it echoes that uh, mm-hmm. Pushkin's. Uh, uh, perception of that grotesque, unnecessarily humiliating mm-hmm. uh, execution. Mm-hmm. But, but don't, don't you think, Anna, that he remains marvelously untransformed? It seems to me that. <laughs> yeah, probably. Absolutely. The, the, the kid we saw at the beginning, I mean, he, he flops, he, he, he loses hope, if you like. Uh, he marries this peasant woman instead of marrying a, a 
beautiful princess or something like that. But he's still writing his poems. He's still living in the life of the mind. Um, right? I mean, you know, yeah, I he doesn't. Yeah, that's true. But he uh, he has this uh, every so often he has this epiphanical moments moments of uh, high emotion when he tries to commit suicide, for example, by drowning himself in Sarskaya pond, which is almost funny. But if you think about it in terms of uh, of modern day psychology, he was bullied mm-hmm. and he was driven to take his own life, basically, it's not funny at all. Uh, but he, he, he has, uh, in spite of his childishness, he has this immense power to overcome things and keep going, yeah, which yeah. in a way, uh, a testament to his strength of character. It's because, he, because he doesn't transform, but he keeps going. Yeah, like a child, like a child who takes everything in his stride, you know, <laughs> accepts circumstances and keeps going. Uh, that's why I would have gone, uh, going back to the beginning of our conversation, when you say, is this a Bildungsroman? It really isn't a Bildungsroman because he isn't, he isn't educated. Mm-hmm. It's, not, yeah, it's not a Bildungsroman because in Bildungsroman, at the end, there should be a reconciliation of an individual with his milieu his integration into it. It doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. He's still a stranger. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. And if you look at that, um, uh, I know it's not in the novel, but it's in the book, because we put some poems of Kukubeta in the book. You look at that very last fragment that he wrote about going blind and um, thinking himself as being like Ostian. He's one of the last people in Europe to still believe in Ostian. You know, <laughs> or something like that. And he... Oh, and he, 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 he's still faithful to his poet friends, to Pushkin, Gabrielov, and the rest of them, to the Lisey. He still envisages, although going blind, he's still uh, dreaming in the same way that he always does. And not only he's, he's blind, but they are dead by then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's talking to people who have long been, you know, <laughs> no more. It didn't exist. Yeah, it's wonderful, I think. But he sees himself as this conduit, as a, as a, as a kind of um, almost like a bridge between the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. And this is very, very curious. Mm-hmm. Chris, would you like to add anything to to this conversation? Um, no, no, I, I, I mean, I, I think I agree with Peter that it, it, it's not building his mind because uh, he, coming back to what I said at the beginning, he, he refuses to let the child in him die. He refuses mm-hmm, to say mm-hmm, goodbye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and that's it. And that's one of the compelling, one of the really compelling and very real uh, aspects of, uh, of this character and, and characterization. Um, it's quite astonishing um, what, what Tinyanov did. Mm-hmm. So, what reading advice would you give to those who are not familiar with Tinyana, the novelist? Read the novel, reread the novel, and enjoy. Uh, <laughs> Thank uh, you. A little more advice. Just for those who don't know Russian history, just give yourself a little bit of reading of Russian history before you begin, because quite a lot is taken for granted uh, that are fairly obvious to most Russian readers. 
not terribly obvious to most uh, Western readers, let's mm-hmm. say. So I, mm-hmm. I would, you know, just a, a page or two of some general history to remind yourself which emperor was which and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there's an awful lot of characters in this, a lot of history, and um, uh, you, you, you can give yourself a bit of a help that way. Then go well, you know, Peter is absolutely correct that uh, the author takes his reader for granted. You know, he presupposes mm-hmm. <laughs> a wealth of knowledge which uh, a reader, even a Russian reader, might not necessarily have. Yeah. And you know, that's why we ended uh, ended up. Uh, I wrote an introduction. We compiled a um, list of characters. There are 150 characters, <laughs> all of them, all of them existing, you know. And then we wrote notes. Um, though, although originally the book uh, came out, uh, as as Peter said, uh, meant to be for young readership, for teenage readers, without any notes. Mm-hmm. I think there were two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this, this is, <laughs> you know, it shows. Well, that's that's an interesting comment because it shows it was only 1925, right? When it, uh, the novel was written in 1925, that's that that's yes. yeah. So and it was just a couple of years after the collapse of the Russian Empire, and it also shows the slowness with which uh, um, institutional knowledge changes as well. So I think it's a very interesting comment. Why he didn't include any notes? Why he didn't provide any like background information? No, because for him it was uh, these were. Obvious things, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, Chris, uh, your piece of advice, my, my, my reading advice would be <laughs> read, read it slowly as if you were drinking a fine wine. Oh. Enjoy every sip. Uh, and every, uh, and with a, with a really great wine, every, which has just been opened, every every sip changes as, as it gets to air. So I think you, you have to take this one really slowly, don't you think? And I don't, don't, it's it's not a quick read. Um, no, it's not. Yeah. It's not. Although the first 35, 40 pages, uh, they are obviously written in a more simple way, as if he was kind of uh, very tentatively trying to establish his style. But then he, when, once he gets into his stride, it's like, you know, he takes no prisoners. It's, <laughs> it's captivating. It's very interesting. It's a very thrilling novel. That's why it um, it stays uh, as one of the firm favorites uh, of Russian reading public. Well, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this fascinating uh, conversation today. And of course, thank you for making this uh, uh, novel available to our Anglophone audiences. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Natalia. Bye-bye. Today I spoke with Anna Rush and uh, uh, Chris uh, Rush and Peter Franz, translators of Yuri Tinyanam's novel Kuchlia, December's poet published by Academic Studies Press in 2021. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.